HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. How big is your dinner plate? What color is it? Does it affect your portion size? Or better yet, has it affected your waist size? We'll find out and talk all about it today on A Taste of the Past. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. And, you know, most of us probably think that dinner plates have been around for a long, long time. Well, out east, in the east, in China, they have. But in Western culture, dinner plates, the way we know them today, mass-produced dinner plates, have really only been around since the 19th century uh, when they became mass-produced and, and affordable to the public. And for most of their history, dinner plates have really served the double function of decoration and food consumption. So there you know that they were decorated plates. Uh, of course, early on in history, we've always had there have been bowls. Bowls were, were very common as individual eating and serving dishes. And there we ate from flat shells or banana leaves or, of course, bread trenchers and wooden trenchers were very common. And Pewter, metal, uh, because porcelain was not something that was um, that was used to produce dinner plates until, as I said, till much later in time and adapted from the Chinese culture. Well, today we have dinner plates galore, every color, every size, every shape, and in fact, the size is an issue. We eat off of big plates today, and the question is: Has that contributed to this? epidemic of obesity that we see it seems inconsequential oh what dinner plate size you know how much you're eating well maybe not so in fact so much that um there are people who have done studies on plate size two people in particular and one that we're talking with today brian wansink talking about studying the psychology of of 
why we eat more than we think we're eating. Brian Wansink, who is joining me here today, is a professor and director of the Cornell University Food and Brand Lab, where he's the leading ex- he's the leading expert in changing our behavior, our eating behavior, both on an individual level and a mass scale, <clears throat> using principles of behavioral science. Brian is the author of Slim by Design and his earlier book, Mindless Eating, as well as many articles, in particular, terrifically not wonderful articles and papers on the plate study. From 2007 to 2009, he was the White House appoint the White House appointed him as the USDA's CNNP executive director in charge of dietary guidelines. And so you all know about that food guide pyramid. Well, he had a lot to do with with redesigning that. Dr. Wansick um, also appeared in Michael Pollan's recent video film uh, about his on from his book called In Defense of Food, where he does present his plate study. And he received his PhD from Stanford. And according to him, Brian loves French food and French fries, Cabernet and Diet Coke. So you see, he is a regular person. And he's not some <laughs> fanatic. <laughs> well, Brian, people, I don't want people to think that you're some sort of, you know, food fanatic of not eating. And he oh, joins us today from Oslo, Norway. Welcome, Brian. I'm glad you laughed. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I'm, I'm glad. It's great to be with you. I, I, I'm sure there's some listeners out there who are kind of going, this guy studies plates. Get <laughs> well, it's a whole lot more than plates, but you know, my my initial question for you is really for you to tell us what is the Food and Brand Lab, the Cornell Food and Brand Lab, and and what is the mission? Ah, well, the mission is to come up with transforming solutions to eating problems, and that could be everything from you know trying to get your kid to clean the plate and whether you should or not, or it could be a how you change school lunches. You know, we actually, uh, about 20 years ago, developed uh, the first 100-calorie packs and showed the industry, you guys will make money making people eat less if you can <laughs> launch these things. So that's our, our main mission in life is just to come up with solutions to eating problems. It can be with some people uh, not eating enough. And we, what we do is we use principles of behavioral science and everything from lab studies to field studies to studies in supermarkets and bars and homeless pantries to figure out how to change people and help people change themselves also in a very easy way. Yeah. And well, actually that's how plate sizes kind of came into this. Well, that's that. And that's where I, obviously that's where I want to go because, um, Plates, just to talk about the history of plates alone, well, you sort of have to do that with photographs to see what it's all about. But you really took the plate to another level, and not just the plate, <laughs> but the color of the plate, the color of the tablecloth, uh, the setting. Uh, and did this did this start before you came across uh, Franz Del Franz Del Boeuf, Franz Del Boeuf's illusion, or? <laughs> <laughs> and tell us what that is, Franz Del yeah. Boeuf. Yeah, start with Franz. Yeah, well, that, that he um, he was a uh, um, uh, an academic back in, in France, back in the Del uh, Boeuf, um, back in the back in the nineteenth century. And one of the things that he came up with is this kind of this crazy idea. He did all these little visual illusions, and you've kind of seen the concentric circle illusion, 
you know, where you have the, you know, they have the black dot, you have the, um, um, the, the, <clears throat> uh, the black dots is either in a, a big white circle or to the smaller white circle, and the smaller the circle is around it, the bigger you think the dot is. And we've all seen these kind of things because they're like in the Visual Illusion Psych 101 class mm-hmm. every year. And when this was done, again, this is about 150 years ago, um, nobody really thought it had any relevance at all to anything. Because it's just like, oh, it's a little parlor trick. And um, one of the things we want to look at is, really, can something like this really bias what you do and how much you serve yourself? And how this came up is, <clears throat> this is about 20, <clears throat> 20 years ago. I was a, At that time, I was a professor at the University of Pennsylvania in the, in the Wharton School of Business. And I was looking at how package size influenced how much people poured. We found that if you gave somebody a... Let's see, a, a large box of Cheerios versus a super large box of Cheerios, that even though there's plenty of Cheerios in both boxes, people poured about 22% more from this really super big box. Hmm. But you know, if you asked them if they poured more, no, they didn't pour more. Because they always looked at how much they served themselves relative to, the, to other cues, in, in that case, the size of the big box. And if you talk to people eating dinner and you say, hey, how do you, how do you decide how much you're going to eat for dinner? Nobody can really give you an answer. I mean, they can mumble something or try to rationalize something, but they can't really give you a good answer. And oftentimes you hear, well, I just serve the amount that seems right. And it's like, well, what could influence the amount that somebody seems, thinks is right to serve for dinner? How, how, what could influence how much spaghetti or how much rice you put on your plate? <laughs> and so, I mean, we know that the person sitting next to you has a huge influence. In fact, if you're a woman sitting next to a woman, what the person next to you serves will influence about 44% of what you serve. But looking more broadly, what else could influence things? And we thought, well, you know, let's look at the size of the plate itself. If the size of a package influences how much people serve, maybe the size of a plate influences how much you put on it. And so that's where this came from. You know, like about probably 15 years ago is when we ran the first study. And actually the first study we published in JAMA, which is just like, well, I guess that worked out okay. (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, Journal of American Medical Association, right? Um, yeah, you know, well, be obesity is talk about a big money maker. I mean, obesity is 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 a huge problem in this country, and certainly we have to look at something that might contribute to it. So, tell me, you did you and um, one of your uh, co-authors on a paper, Kurt. Uh, Kurt. Yeah, Mon- Ben Anderson. Yeah, he yeah. was a he was a postdoc of mine back when I was a professor at the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. And you did, so you actually did this, a study with um, a bunch of people pouring soup. Tell me about the Campbell's Soup trick study. (laughs) Sure, sure. Well, one of the things I had, um, about 10 years ago, I I, I was on sabbatical in in France. And we did this really cool study where I I asked Parisians, I asked 150 Parisians to see Paris residents, how they knew they were through eating dinner. And... The, the two top answers were, I know I'm through eating dinner when I'm no longer hungry and when the 
food I'm eating no longer tastes good. So they're using mm. internal cues to tell them, stop. They're using their taste buds, their tummy to say, look, I've had enough. Well, I asked the same, same question of 150 people in Chicago six months later, how they knew they were through eating dinner. And they said, well, the number one answer is, I, I know I'm through eating dinner when the plate I'm eating off of is empty. Mm. The second one was, I know I'm through eating dinner when the TV show I'm watching is over. But, <laughs> That's dangerous, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, but these are like external cues. They're using, you know, the what the TV set tells them to do, what the plate tells them to do, you know, what people around them are telling them to do to tell them they're, they're, they're no longer hungry. And, and so it made us think, what would happen if, if your plate never emptied? I mean, would you continue to eat like the family dog until you just like exploded? And so we created this refillable soup bowl, and it was a, a bowl that, that refilled itself. It was a bunch of them, actually. They refilled themselves from under, under the table, uh, and so you, know, you ate Campbell's soup, and as you ate, the level would dutifully drop. And then <laughs> once you stopped, it would rise again. And, and we put these in a real restaurant, okay? So people came for lunch, and the first course was tomato soup. And, uh, you know, they didn't realize, but the bowl they're eating out of had a hole drilled in the bottom of it, and it had a hole drilled in the table. They had a food-grade tube that was connected to a... Uh, other container that was refilling the soup bowl. And what we found was after 10 minutes when we stopped, stopped and served the next course, um, and we asked them, hey, do you think you uh, uh, had enough? Are you still hungry? People would say, no, how can I be? People who had the refillable soup bowls would say, no, how can I be hungry? I, I still have half a bowl of soup left. But they had already eaten 73% more than the people with the normal bowls. Hmm. So, so we don't eat with our tummy. We eat with our eyes. That's right. That's right. Well, and this this um, fashion of you know the large plates. I'm not sure where and why that started. You know, the architectural food looks better. In other words, food that has been that's artfully piled up and designed with a little you know crispy leaf on the top looks better with a large. Um, canvas under it, a large plate that would be. And that, I don't know whether the restaurant industry started that or what happened, but our plates, since 1960, our plates have increased in size by how much? Like 60%? Yeah, by like slightly over 6%, by about 64%. Yeah, just since 1960. And, you know, we, we, we don't know that exactly. The way, we, the way we know that is just by Going through what we've done is we've we've gone through all sorts of secondhand stores. We've gone through eBay sales, and we've been able to find the dates of the plates that were offered, and then looking at them over the years. So there's there's a lot of plates that aren't accounted for because nobody buys them or sells them on eBay or because they uh, were too small. But if mm-hmm. we look at the major ones that have been for sale over the last century, and in fact it, it's gone up over uh, the size there was dinner plates gone from about nine and uh, half inches. Back at the turn of uh, the, in 1900, um, to about 11 and a quarter inches today, right. 11 and a half inches today. Oh, and I know, and I know it's true. I'm I inherited my mother's uh, china, and this is china from the early 40s. And I thought, well, maybe I'll drag it out for Thanksgiving, right? 
And I pulled it out and I said, how in the world did our family use this Thanksgiving? <laughs> the plate was so small. Exactly. The plate was so small. Um, and so I realized that uh, we've, we've gotten large. But, and a friend of mine has a beautiful collection of, of old um, early, 19, early 20th century dinnerware from Europe. And all of the plates are quite small. I thought they were the dessert plates, you know, the salad plates, but those are the main plates. Yeah. So, so our plate size, yes, has indeed increased, and now we get to that um, that great de uh, illusion, and the amount of food on a small plate versus a large plate. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, and and so what happens when when people when when you're dishing food onto a plate. Benchmark things based on the, the, the size of the food and the outside um, of the plate. And in the same way, like when you, when you pour water in a glass, nobody looks at water from the bottom to the top. You don't look at water to the top of the cup because that's sort of the, that's, that's the rest of what you're worried about is going over. And so this, this basic idea that you're always benchmarking by looking at the edge of the food and the edge of the circle or the edge of the plate, in the case of serving a plate, ends up being the, the reason why um, you end up going toward the direction of the edge of a plate until you get to about the 80% full level. At that point, you start sort of backing off. So the larger the plate is, um, the, the more distance you, the more you can pile the food up before you start feeling this pressure to, not go any farther right well and those and that means our portion sizes increase that much that's a lot of calories we're going to talk about that and also how color affects the amount we eat as well when we come back after a very short break program was brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Edwards Suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color. The Edwards name is well known for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. Hi, we're back, and I'm talking with Brian Wensick, who is the director of the Cornell University Food and Brand Lab and author of Slim by Design. And Brian, um, we talked about the size of the plate, and I think people you know, can realize, well, they're going to dish out more on a large plate. Although sometimes a little bit of food in the center of the plate is a lot of food on a small plate, and we don't think so. Is that right? Yeah, that's, that's uh, exactly right. And so that's one reason that for, for a lot of people, using small plates actually does get them to eat less on a given occasion. Hmm. Now, the problem is if once that plate size drops below about nine and a half or nine and a quarter inches, 
that's when it backfires because at that point, it's like you looking at those old plates that your mother gave you. Once it goes below, once a plate gets below about nine and a half, nine and a quarter inches, you start saying that's about 20 centimeters. Um, once it drops below that, that point, you start saying, wait a minute, this is, this is ridiculously small. And you realize you're fooling yourself and it's at that point that you go back for seconds and thirds. So right. you can't drop below this magic sweet spot or everything backfires in the, and falls apart. Right. Well, now what about color? You know, color's interesting. That When my first um, book, Mindless Eating, came out, I would get some calls and people would say, what color of you know, kitchen should I have or plates or, or dinnerware? Thinking that there's like uh, some magical color, like it was all blue or it's all green, that you would lose magical pounds. And we had about 12 silly studies trying to figure this out, and we couldn't figure, find any difference that color made at all. It would just seem to be random. Until we realized it's not the color of the plate, it's the contrast of the plate and the, with the color of the food. So if you serve white rice and a white plate, you're going to serve about 19 or 20% more. Huh. If you serve white rice on a, on a brown plate or a black plate or a red plate, if you serve red pasta on a red plate, again, you're going to serve 20% more red pasta than you are if it were instead on a white plate. So the, the contrast makes the big difference. But, you know, the cool thing is is that we, we see this, I know this is about plates, but we see this in all other con- contexts, too, that we find that when we have people pour wine in glasses, that mm-hmm. people will, will pour about 11% more white wine into any glass they pour into than they would red wine. And part of it happens to do that by the white wine isn't all that visible, so by the time you realize you've poured a little bit more than you want, you've gone 10% too far. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> or the, or and the same thing goes with that, the size of the glass as well. Oh, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It, makes, it makes a huge difference. You know, you, you made an interesting point a little bit earlier where you said when you were talking about history. And, you know, a lot of people say, you know, that, oh, my God, our, our portion sizes, you know, they just, you just ramped up dramatically and they... Uh, it's just a function of the last 30 years. One thing we want to look at with when it came to plates was, you know, have the portions at home kind of, <clears throat> or, or normal portions, have they increased over the, over the years? And it's hard to get a, a sense of that. But one thing that we did, I teamed up my, with my brother, who's a religious history professor, and one thing we did is we took all these depictions of the Last Supper from like 1,000 to 2,000, over a 1,000-year period, and... Um, and we coded and we measured the size of all the food in these in these, in these uh, depictions, and the size of plates, the size of entrees, bread, and everything. And one of the things that we found is that over the last 1,000 years, the size of plates depicted in the Last Supper have increased by about 69 percent. Hmm. So, commensurate with that, the size of entrees also have been increased by about 66 percent. Right. Right. And it, it it tracks perfectly with um, how wealthy the country was at the time the painter painted the painting. That's right. That's that's absolutely right. And I, I remember reading that study that you did, and I thought it was fascinating, because you um, you know we know that we can't really study, and, and you were doing it just to see who who was painting it at that time and what the trend was at that time, because as historians we know very well you can't really rely on a painting to know you know 
first of all, there wouldn't have been individual plates, but <laughs> the in what the food was, often people look at it and say, oh, well, I know, they were serving pineapple for dessert. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know. um, well, so you have to be careful what's in there. Yeah. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. That's, that's very yeah. interesting. Um, what about the uh, tablecloth and table coverings? Well, you know, again, again the one contrast. One of these, what these can do is they can they provide contrast with the rest of your meal, and if if, if they also sort of contrast with the size of the plate, or with the color of the plate, it can alter the how much you serve. But you know, by the time we're getting to serving, uh, you know, the colors of rooms and the colors of uh, of uh, tablecloths, it's it's really having a secondary effect. Yeah. It's better off just saying, "Hey, I'm gonna use a small plate, but not below about nine and a half inches," and and that. And if it's uh, if you use typically an off-white plate, you're gonna be in great shape. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because if um, I think I don't know whether it was in one of your studies or, you know, everyone, of course, grasped 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 hold of this, and you know. Uh, nutritionists and dietitians particularly, and said, boy, if you just use a smaller plate and you eat, let's say, like 50 calories less per, per meal or, you know, something like that, but the amount of weight that a person could lose over a year just by cutting out, just by cutting down on a smaller plate was rather astounding. Yeah, you know, I think, and a person has to realize that not all the calories we eat off of plates actually is a fairly, fairly small percentage um, but it, it can cut that down. And we, again, in most of our studies, we don't look at any sort of compensation that might occur with somebody eating more Cheetos later that night. We, we do know that at the moment, people eat less, but they say that they're equally satisfied and that they're, and that they're equally full. But then again, it can't be too small. <laughs> so if it's too small, people kind of go, uh-huh, I'm tricking right. myself. Right. I'm right. going to have seconds or thirds. <laughs> well, when you like the, at the um, the food and brand lab, you say that you uh, try to adjust eating behavior and on a mass scale. And again, you said these are changes like the hundred calorie packets of things, make, making things available, or just changing the the whole psychology. What on a mass level? How? What type of changes are you trying to affect? Well, yeah. I mean, if we take a look at uh, schools, for instance, I mean, this uh, within the United States, we started some, something called this <clears throat> smarter lunchroom approach, where you know, instead of essentially telling people, you know, you have to drink white milk instead of chocolate milk, we kind of say, well, let's set up, let's show lunchroom directors how they can set up lunchroom so that kids take a whole lot more white milk without having to be forced or directed to do it. Okay, let's, let's make sure that, you know, at least 50% of all the milk is white, that the white milk's in the front of the cabinet, that if they want to get something, a flavored sugared beverage, they have to actually go someplace where there's a bottleneck and wait for it. Now, let's make sure it's white milk's in every cooler. And, and by setting these things up, not just for milk, but for fruits and for vegetables, for targeted entrees, um, we've, we've shown that you can dramatically influence what kids eat and, and how much they like it. And right now that's over in, in over 26,000 schools across the United States. And actually I'm, I'm in um, Norway on sabbatical this for the last six months when we're implementing this in Scandinavian countries along with, you'll get a kick out of this, 
The small plate movement. Ah. <laughs> you didn't know about that, did you? <laughs> All right. So, so I, I had a feeling something was going on in Norway, but I was thinking maybe you were learning from them what their, with their sensible eating plans or something. But, so you are trying to institute a small plate movement there. Well, let's talk about that. What is it, what's, how is it being received? Well, you know, it's been received extremely well because the way the way you target things like this, and, and just the way we made the smarter lunchroom movement really take off in the United States, is all lunchrooms are interested in getting their kids to eat healthy, but they're also interested in being a lot more profitable and breaking even. And so, you know, essentially, we directed ourselves at the food service director, saying, "Look, you can get kids to eat a lot healthier, and you can save money by doing this stuff." Well, that's the exact, exact same thing we did. Here in Norway, and worked with the largest um, chain of hotels, and convinced them to drop the size of their uh, plates from 25 centimeters to about 21 centimeters. It's, it's going from about 11 and a half to about about 10 10 and a quarter inches. And what they found is they there's about 40 percent of the food at the you know you have these extra they're up they're crazy. The hotels have. And, but about 40% of food is being wasted. It went from 40% down to about 20%. And so by starting in the hotels, we have been getting a lot of traction. People have been noticing smaller plates. And the next move is to take and show consumers that it worked well. Here's how it worked. Here's evidence that it worked. And uh, it's something that they need to consider next. Well, that it's... That it's a great step, I think, and, and, a, and a, a great way to go, and uh, certainly an easy way for a person to to design, as you say, slim by design. I mean, there's certain things you can do, not not to fool yourself, but to you know to make a conscious effort of you know of designing how much you're going to eat and and be satisfied. But you took it a step another step too and like michael bloomberg and his you know trying to ban the the 16 ounce uh, or whatever it was jumbo size you know sodas um you talk about movie popcorn and, and the you know jumbo tubs of popcorn um what's a you know that you can never eat a, you can't there's no right amount of popcorn to eat but what is what's that about <laughs> Well, it's until you run out of Diet Coke and you're, you're too thirsty to eat anymore, I think that's when that's when I stop. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's one of those things, it's, it, as you say, the calories aren't always just on the plate. It's all those other things that are around us. Um, oh, and something, I, yeah, that I wanted you to mention about about things on your counter. Look around your kitchen counter and things that are out on the counter. Even having a toaster out, you say, might induce people to eat more? Yeah, you know it's really cool. We did we did a, a study. Where, like this is actually in chapter two of of Slim by Design, but we did a, a study with 240 households in Syracuse, New York, where we we call it the Syracuse study, not surprisingly. But we we went up there and we 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 photographed, we we weighed everybody in the household, and we photographed their kitchen on the day that we went there. We photographed everything in the kitchen, and we went to see if we could predict people's weight based on what we just saw visible in the kitchen, you know, like the size and, 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 and everything. And we found, like, you know, the size of the kitchen, bigger kitchens make bigger people. Nope, because most people can afford bigger kitchens, can also f- afford bigger exercise equipment, I think. 
<laughs> but we but we found that there were about six things that had a tremendous impact <clears throat> on on people, and and one of them um, one of them was if there was chips or cookies sitting on the visible anywhere in the kitchen, not in a cupboard, but like visible sitting out. On the average, a person is going to weigh about ten pounds more than the neighbor next door. If there if there were <laughs> There's soda pop sitting out, and again, I, I I am a big lover of the of diet cola, so this was a blow. But it didn't matter if it was regular diet soft drinks. People weighed about 25 pounds more on average mm. than the neighbor next door. But the the big surprise here was breakfast cereal. I mean, you can kind of think, oh, breakfast cereal, it's so you know, it's so innocent and so sweet. It's got all those fortified vitamins. It's got, it's got the pretty woman in the front smiling with white teeth. But if you had it sitting anywhere in the kitchen, visible, on average you weighed about 20 pounds more than your neighbor who didn't. Wow. I think it's largely because you just walk by and you kind of go, oh, look, that's so Oh, I'm hungry. Yeah. And that tastes so good. So you say put so, it in a, an opaque container, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Keep it out of you. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, we're just about out of time here. And this is, I think this is so much fascinating information for people who really want to take charge of, of their eating habits. And I, I thank you so much for sharing that. And I encourage people to take a look at Slim by Design. And, uh, and even your earlier book, Mindless Eating, I think that just sets the stage so well for a lot of the psychology that, um, that causes us to overeat. And again, Brian Wansink, thank you very much for sharing and joining with us today. And I urge everyone to go take a look in their cabinet at how big their plates are and check and see if there's fruit on your counter or are there cookies. (laughs) So thank you so much for the information and thank you for listening. It's been a taste of the past. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.